0: This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Nathan Heffel. The Denver Police Department has expanded its training to help officers make split-second decisions about the use of force. This comes as police departments across the country are under scrutiny after a succession of police shootings. CPR's Andrea Dukakis got to test out a new tool the department's using known as a shoot-don't-shoot shoot simulator and found out she might not fare so well in real a uh, real-life shootout. Andrea, welcome to the program. Thanks. What is a shoot-don't-shoot simulator?
1: Think about it like an over-the-top video game. The department just got it, and it's set up at the Police Training Academy in Denver. The simulator's inside a white tent about the size of a small garage. I met up with some other reporters who were also invited to try it out, and the officers there said we'd be going inside in pairs. But first we got some warnings from Sergeant Eric Knudsen.
2: Your heart rate's going to go up, adrenaline's going to be dumping, and you may be doing things that you have no idea what you're doing. So if you have
0: a pistol on your leg or something like that that you're not telling me about, tell me about it
1: now. Let's, Let's get it out in the open.
0: So he was telling you not to bring guns into the tent?
1: Well, he was kind of joking, but he told us that they make officers take off their weapons before they go inside the tent. And that's because the simulator can feel so real that they worry officers would reach for their real guns, even though they're given a fake gun in the simulator. Uh, At that point, I started getting really nervous about going in. And as reporters, we haven't done this before, so we have this no is idea.: be funny. So. <laughs>
2: so just handle the situation as oh. you think an officer should yep. handle, including communicating with any actors in the scenario, um, using your weapon. Now, when we ha- put the officers through this, they have simulated um, pepper spray, simulated tasers, <clears> and then the firearm. So they have different options in addition to their verbal communication skills that they can use through the scenario. For the purposes in here, your only weapon will be a firearm and your words.
1: So tell us how it went. Well, I went in with a TV reporter. It's dark inside, and you're surrounded on three sides by huge screens. They gave us each a fake handgun and told us we'd do two scenarios. Sergeant Knutson was behind us at a computer watching, and he described the first scenario.
2: You're going to be driving through a rural area. Um, you're going to be flagged down by a lady who says that her husband took her baby, and he's acting very strangely. She's going to be very upset, and she's going to tell you to hurry, 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 hurry.
1: The video starts, and you feel like you're in a real police car, and you start hearing this hysterical woman screaming. So you probably can't hear her that well, but she's asking desperately for help, and we continue in the car and see a man holding a baby. He's threatening to drop it over this concrete barrier down a steep hill. Then the scene changes, and we're outside of the car. And our job is to convince the man to calm down and give up the baby. We want to protect you and the baby, and you want to protect the baby too. Please put the baby down. I don't care anymore. I'll kill her. And I don't know if you can hear that very well, but we're trying to talk him down. And even though it was just a video, I was fully engrossed in it and was scared the guy was going to drop the baby. We obviously didn't have any training, so mostly we're just pleading with him. And Officer Knutson's able to change this scenario that's on the screen based on how we react we didn't end up drawing our weapons, but I definitely felt like it. And eventually the guy puts the baby down and after it's over, Officer Knutson says we did a pretty good job trying to talk to the guy. The next scenario doesn't go so well. Hmm. We're called to a theater, and we're told there are five white guys in camouflage shooting. And we're made to feel like we're walking in past the popcorn and drink counter. Then we hear gunshots and draw our weapons. There's a gunman to our right who shoots at us. Civilians are running around everywhere, and we have to make sure we don't shoot at them. Ultimately, we go outside. There's this other guy with a gun. We try to negotiate with him, but we aren't quick enough. Put the gun down. At that point, my partner and I are probably dead, and the bad guy probably gets away. And we get a pretty bad review from Knutson, who says, "'We didn't react quickly enough.'" I said at the beginning that this is like an over-the-top video game, but it's really not fun. I felt my heart pumping hard, and I was genuinely scared.
0: And, of course, the cops are trained to do this, unlike you and other reporters.
1: Yeah, that's very true. So it's not a great comparison. I do want to point out that the technology lets the officer running the computer shock a cop when they do something wrong. That's when they may have let themselves get shot. And I think that adds a little more fear to the whole thing. Another interesting sidebar is that one cameraman who was there had been on the scene at the Aurora Theater shootings and had to leave the tent because the theater scene made him so upset. Hmm.
0: How much of the training is a test of how officers react to different racial profiles?
1: I wasn't able to find out while I was there, but Denver Police Chief Robert White told us the technology will let them film situations in Denver and use those. So I imagine they'll also use race as a factor. How much does this technology cost? About $300,000, the Denver Police Foundation bought the technology for the department. All right. And what did the Denver
0: Police do before they had training like this, this interactive training?
1: They had another technology that was much more primitive with just one screen. But I should say the department also stages scenarios in real schools and in other places where the police have to act out what they do. Do you think this training would actually keep an officer from making a bad decision?
0: Uh, there have been countless real-life situations where officers were too quick to use their weapons.
1: Studies show these types of trainings are not surprisingly far more effective than learning in a classroom. And some neuroscientists who've researched virtual reality scenarios like this one say they do have an impact on real-life situations. Um, I can say from experience that you do feel that adrenaline rush. Mm -hmm. Officer Knudsen says doing these scenarios and feeling the fear makes a real difference.
0: They get used to that feeling. And the more they do it, they're able to train themselves to listen to what's going on around them. They're able to recognize when they're getting tunnel vision and open things up. So the more they do this, the better off it is for our officers on the street.
1: It's certainly not going to solve the problem of the lack of trust between police and citizens, especially minorities. But if it can help at all, that's a step forward.
0: Thanks very much, Andrea. Welcome. CPR's Andrew Dukakis, she tried out what's called a shoot-don't-shoot simulation technology used by the Denver police. Up next, we'll talk to a teen who fled violence in Eritrea and is now a high school student at a Denver high school. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. You're back with Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Nathan Heffel. The U.S. will admit nearly 60 percent more refugees in the next year if President Barack Obama gets his way. A group of Republicans in Congress is trying to stop him. They recently asked their leadership to block funding that would allow refugees from certain countries to enter the U.S. With this political debate as the backdrop, a Denver high school student traveled to Washington, D.C. last week to advocate for more resources to help refugees like himself. Shambel Giroux fled violence in Eritrea on the Horn of Africa and is now a senior at South High School. He joins us on the phone from his principal's office. Welcome to the program.
3: Hello. Hey, hey, Ben.
0: Why did you leave Eritrea and how did you make it to Colorado?
3: Well, um, I left my country 2009 right after my mom passed away and. You know, obviously, the reason why we left is that, um, you know, there is no opportunity for young kids uh, in terms of education, in terms of, um, you know, living style. So everything is, you know, um, there is no opportunity for uh, students. And the other thing is I talked about this with Rachel, and all I can say is there is a human rights uh, violation uh, in Eritrea or in, you know, other countries. And I don't really want to talk the details about it, but that's the reason why uh, we left the uh, Eritrea.
0: And, and Rachel Estabrook is is my producer. Uh, you said we uh, left Eritrea. You left with your brother, isn't that right?
3: Uh, no, my brothers left right after I uh, went out of the country. So I left with my two friends. I see. Yeah,
0: Anderson, and you, you still have family there in Eritrea, and, and fear they could be put in in danger. Uh, but i 'll say generally, Human Rights Watch says the country has a dismal human rights situation in Eritrea and has patterns of abuse that include forced labor, arbitrary arrests, and enforced uh, disappearances you 're one of hundreds of thousands of Eritreans who have fled in recent years, according to the United Nations can you Can you talk with your family members who are still there
3: well my I have four brothers and four sisters and uh, The six of them are in Eritrea with my father, and they live in a, you know, countryside. It's like we don't really have any technology or any resources where you can talk to them, you know, clearly. But uh, my sister is still living in the capital city in Asmara, and she's already married. And, you know, I haven't seen my family for seven years, so I don't really know uh, all the details, how they live and how they're doing, so...
0: Yeah. And, and, of course, you said the technology wasn't very great. Apparently, they just have a flip phone that they talk to. There are interruptions uh, often with, with the phone service there.
3: Oh, yeah. Like, I last two, three weeks, uh, I was trying to reach my father, and it wasn't working. Like, I couldn't reach him.
0: You first settled in Colorado Springs, and you now live in Aurora. Your English is, is really good for only being here a few years. Were you learning English in Eritrea?
3: No, I did not. I was in uh, fourth grade when I was in Eritrea in in Ethiopia at the camp Ma'ayni. I just, you know, uh, finished uh, seventh grade. And it was English, of course, but we didn't really, uh, we weren't taking the classes like, uh, you know, seriously because we were in refugee, we were in the camp, so we were just, you know. Mm -hmm. How to uh, move from uh, Ethiopia to other uh, to other countries where we can have better opportunity in education? So, you know, everyone who live in the camp right now, they don't really um, they take any education seriously because they, it, it's it's not helpful. It, there is no like uh, resources or any uh, helpful uh, like high level of education. So. Um, yeah, but I started my English uh, uh, when I was in the camp, but I was just watching movies and, uh, you know, hearing uh, some people talking, uh, you know, on the, on TV or something like that. And when I came in Colorado Springs, I um, started going to school, and obviously my English improved uh, through Rosetta Stone. This is the so Rosetta Stone. That's yeah. the
0: online program. The the language. Yeah, program? it
3: is. Yeah, it is online program. So I was taking the Rosetta Stone program every night in my cl- uh, in my room, and you know that kind of helped me. I literally improved my English uh, right away. So.
0: So you got connected to a new organization called the Refugee Congress, which advocates for refugees in the U.S. And with support from the United Nations, you went to Washington, D.C. last week with 49 other refugees, one living in every state. You all talked with lawmakers like Congressman Mike Kaufman and Staffers for Colorado Senators. What message did you give them and what did you ask them to do?
3: Well, like I said, I talked to Mike Kaufman and I was actually... Uh, he was actually asking me, like, uh, my education and where I'm from. You know, basically, like, the main uh, uh, reason that we were in in Washington, D.C., was to kind of share our stories and tell to the media or to people uh, who we are and what we value and what is our dignity. So we were telling them uh, our story. So that was the main reason. And I talked to Mike uh, Kaufman, and uh, I kind of, I know he's a Republican, but I think he has a feeling, like he he knows uh, refugees what it's like to be in the camp, because he was in Ethiopia, he went to uh, Syria or Iraq, I think, and he knows the living uh, of refugees, so uh, we were just sharing our stories and telling them, the problem that we have in Colorado, uh, for example, uh, you know, a lot of refugee students, they don't really, uh, you know, talk about themselves. They don't really tell their stories, where they're from and how they arrived. They don't have the confidence to talk because they feel like they've been discriminated or they've been bullied by people. So they don't really uh, have that confidence to talk. And that's that's why I'm here to talk with, you know, Ms. Hansen and with uh uh, assistant, principal assistant, um, Ms. Vaska. So, yeah.
0: What, what do you say, and Ms. Hansen is the principal at South High School, what do you say to people who may be against letting more refugees into the United States?
3: I, I want them to uh, uh, search or to I want them to be or to, uh, I, I want them to kind of uh, search refugee's story or refugee's uh uh background you know uh, if what if we like for example if you have kids if you have uh uh you know kids in america and if they if they are disappeared from you or if they've been uh in other states what would like to be like you know like uh, for me like my parents they they do worry about me you know and and what if that happened to your uh, uh, family or to your uh, uh, kids, and what would you react? That's the main thing. Like with the refugees and with the people in America here, uh, they don't really know the living condition of uh, refugees. You know what they've been through. Uh, you know, refugees are fleeing from country because of uh, persecution of or war. So, and a lot of people interpreted it like differently. So. I want them to search and to look back or to uh, see uh, the story of refugees and sure. immigration, So,
0: Well, Shambel, thanks so much for joining us. Oh, thank you. Shambel Zerou lives in Aurora and goes to Denver's South High School, a refugee himself. He recently traveled to D.C. to advocate for more resources to help fellow refugees across the U.S. He hopes to go to medical school at CU after graduating high school. We'll be right back. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. You're back with Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Nathan Heffel. Pitch, black, darkness. That may not sound like an ideal way to eat dinner, but at the Blind Cafe, which returns to Boulder this week, dining in the dark is the backdrop for a social experiment. We sent our producer Stephanie Wolf last fall to check it out.
2: Hey guys, how are you doing? Good My name is Rosh. I'm the founder of the Blind Cafe. Really excited to have you guys here. Um, I'm going to make a few announcements so we can get you guys into the dark. A couple ground rules is we ask that you guys don't bring any light into the dark. So that means you need to turn off your cell phones 100%.
0: Rosh's full name is Brian Roshinlow. Our audio equipment did not meet his ground rules. It glows. So Stephanie's recorder had to get covered up with duct tape and heavy fabric. That made for less than ideal recording conditions, and you may hear that in the sound quality, especially after she entered the dark room in the cafe. For the waiters that night, this environment wasn't so foreign. They were visually impaired. They confidently led diners to their tables. The Blind Cafe includes dinner, dessert, and live music, all in pitch darkness. It now tours the country, popping up in cities including San Francisco, Austin, and Chicago. This event was at a chapel in Boulder. Here again is Brian Rushenlow.
2: We actually started it here, uh, upstairs, in the upstairs chapel, um, five, almost six years ago.
0: He was inspired by a cafe in the dark of Iceland and says the experience was so profound he wanted to bring it to the U.S. The goal is to get people outside their comfort zones, and it did for our producer. She said the first 15 minutes was unnerving.
2: My orientation is all off.
0: Another goal is to help people understand what it's like to have poor or no eyesight. At one point, diners asked the waiters questions, like how they read people when they can't see their faces. Server, Greg Hill. Well, I think we read expression as blind people through like the tone of the voice and through like the vibe that somebody sends send off, right? So you can sort of tell if somebody's like uptight from how they're speaking or a particular like feeling you get from them. The evening ended with a performance by Rush and Lowe's band. He urged people to get up and dance. It was too dark to tell who was dancing, but many felt uninhibited enough to sing along. And alive. Thanks to our producer, Stephanie Wolf for that look inside the Blind Cafe last fall. When we come back, we revisit my conversation with the cafe's founder, Brian Rauschenloh, from earlier this year. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Nathan Heffel. The Blind Cafe returns to Boulder this week. Visitors to the cafe are plunged into complete darkness. No cell phones or electronic devices of any kind to light the way. I spoke to the cafe's founder, Brian Rauschenloh, earlier this year. He says dining in the dark is the backdrop for a social experiment. So uh, welcome to the program. Hi, good to be here. Uh, You got the idea for the Blind Cafe after going to a cafe in the dark in Reykjavik, Iceland. Uh, Describe that experience for me.
2: Um, I was on tour as a songwriter, play guitar and sing, and I was traveling across Europe. And I was in Reykjavik, performing concerts uh, all across Europe. Yeah. And I was walking down the street in Reykjavik, Iceland, and there was this uh, girl. She had this laminated. She had this table in front of her with laminated cards on it, and Icelandic words. Okay. And it had Braille printed on the on the laminated cards. And cool. I was like, "What's this?" And she goes, "Oh, it's a cafe in the dark." I said, "What does that mean?" And she yeah. goes, "She goes, oh, well, you know, it's all dark in there, and the waiters are blind." So I had to pay for whatever I wanted outside in the light. Before you she, went in. Yeah, yeah. And, she, and she gave me a little card with the word coffee on it with the Braille, and I was supposed to give that to the blind waiter when I got inside. So I, she brings she sends me down this long, dark hallway by myself and pushes me in and starts closing the door, and I'm like, well, how do I find my seat? And she goes, the waiter will find you. <laughs> and she gave me this cane. She goes, here, use this. So she closed the door, and I'm in this long, dark hallway, and it's really, really dark. And I start making my way all the way down the hallway, using the cane against the floor, how I've seen blind folks do it before, and I open up another door, and it would turn. It was just completely pitch dark. It was almost like jumping into cold water. That sense of like, <gasps> you know, like a shock. Um, everybody's chatting away in Icelandic. There's dishes clanking everywhere. Um, I literally couldn't see anything. After I had a moment of kind of panic, I thought, okay, I can do this. So I use the cane and I start scraping across the ground, and I go into the room. And I bumped into this table. I could tell that there were people at the table. And I asked them if there's any extra chairs. And they said, we don't know. It's dark. It's, it's black. Yeah. <laughs> exactly, yeah. So I ended up hanging out in the dark with these folks that, um, for a couple hours. And I had no idea if they were tall, black, white, in a wheelchair, or blind. So it was like this amazing opportunity to meet people socially without my visual conditioning. So I thought this would be an interesting way to kind of help build community, break down social barriers. Um, and several years later, I made a friend with uh, who is blind. My friend Rick Heyman. He's our keynote speaker, who uh, facilitates the whole uh, Q and A and question and answer forum in the dark.
0: And he was a big catalyst in, in launching this this here in Boulder.
2: Absolutely, yeah. So I said to him, I said, Hey, I want to. I've got this darkness idea. I want to do this event. Um, I would love to do music. I would love to help organize it. And my friend, he's, he's a chef. He'd love to do the food. Yeah. And he was like, well, why don't we do a Q&A about blindness? And he's like, I'll do a poem because he's a spoken word artist as well. So we launched it in 2010, and it's been almost 14,000 people in the dark now since 2010.
0: And there are restaurants in California and New York that, that have offered dining in the dark. How is this different from uh, those cafes and the one you had not recommended?
2: Uh, well, the dining in the dark experiences are just like a re- regular restaurant experience except for you're in the dark and you have your own private little table and your waiter's blind, or sometimes they don't have blind waiters. Sometimes they have infrared goggles. Our event is like an epic experience. Ours is the Blind Cafe experience. So when you arrive, there's like 100 people waiting to get into the dark. It's almost like being in a, a big event. Once we've given you the rules of the game, had your fo- cell phones off, we've talked about how to you know, uh, participate in the event – my blind friends then lead the guests into the pitch-dark room through this darkness tunnel that we create out of fabric. And everybody actually sits down at large tables. So if you came with a friend, you'd be paired up with six other people, an eight-person table, and you literally have to break bread together with your community. You say being
0: in the dark at your events can have a visceral feeling for people. Some people get scared or, mm-hmm. or very uncomfortable, especially like you did that first five yeah. or 10 minutes when yep. you were in that Icelandic cafe. Why do you think dining and interacting in the dark can, can be this visceral?
2: Uh, There's something about the darkness that interrupts our habitual ways of kind of checking out and not being present. So a lot of times we're thinking about where we're going to be or what what we did, and we're kind of in our heads. We're kind of in the future or the past. Or if we start to feel uncomfortable, we check our cell phones. But in the dark, you don't have that. Whatever you're doing, whether you're trying to eat with a fork or trying to relate with somebody at the table or participating in a conversation with the blind folks or being part of the music, you have to be very acute and in the moment. Because you suddenly you don't know how to do everything. You don't know how to eat with a fork. You try to eat with a fork because there's no food on your, on your fork. And so there's something that kind of just interrupts our comfort zone and make, puts us in a situation where we don't quite know what to do. And so we have to pay attention more. And then that's the opportunity. That's the window right there to um, help people grow. Do
0: you think that this is the correct outlet to raise awareness for people who may not have, have sight?
2: Um, Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I'm sighted myself, but um, I've been doing this for six years and I started it with my friend Rick. And what we do is we create a really positive, cool environment for people to come into the dark and have a real heart to heart discussion with the blind with the blind waiters. So it's, it's this magical experience of not being seen. You're in a social setting, but nobody can see you. It's this. It's almost like we all have the same superpower.
0: There is a new blind cafe program called Couples in the Dark. What happens during that
2: event? Um, well, we, that's a pilot. We've piloted uh, that program twice now, and we've been doing it in San Francisco. So that's where we partner with a clinical psychologist, a uh, relationship therapist in San Francisco. And in that program so far, instead of having 50 to 70 people in the dark for like a big social dinner experience, mm-hmm. it's more like uh, six to eight couples and we create these little nests on the floor, but it's all in the dark. You can't see anything. And we give them their picnic baskets and then have flowers in there and they have like wine and mason jars with wine and water. And they have these courses in there and we had them feed each other and we have them pretend that they're picnicking somewhere in the world. Right. And then that's how we reference them. And then That's the first half. We kind of go through this whole sensual eating experience. And then we have a heart-to-heart discussion as a group where everybody shares their wisdom and biggest challenges around relationships.
0: And you're also collaborating with universities, I've heard.
2: Yep. So we're doing Stanford University and uh, California State University. We've had them reach out to come out and do all sorts of programs for them um, around, uh, you know, disabilities awareness and, you know, diversity. Um there's we're barely touching the surface of what we can do with the blind cafe. Is it really
0: about opening up your heart and opening up your mind, but then also uh raising awareness about people who who have lost their sight? It's kind of this balance that you're playing. Is that right?
2: Yeah, it's a little bit of both. So the blind cafe is not a blind organization necessarily. We're using the darkness to create positive and social experiences to see how we can open up and learn more about each other without our visual conditioning, our social etiquette, and our cell phones. Because we're just, people are just starving to f- feel real connected, intimate um, connection. Brian Rochenloh
0: is the founder of The Blind Cafe, which returns to Boulder this week. I spoke to him earlier this year. <laughs> And that's our show. But before we go, Colorado's got a big race at the top of the ballot this year. The contest for U.S. Senate between incumbent Democrat Michael Bennett and Republican Daryl Glenn. We'll be interviewing the candidates on Colorado Matters, and we'd like to know what questions you have for them. Send them to news at CPR.org, and you might hear it on the air. I'm Nathan Hevel. This is Colorado Matters from listener-supported CPR News.